There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Have we got a million viewers and untold listeners? My YouTube channel just passed 100,000 subscribers. Apparently, I get some kind of plaque and some kind of earnings. So please do watch on my YouTube channel. And if you haven't yet subscribed to it, please do. If you're watching us on Facebook, either my own Facebook page or RT's multiple Facebook pages, Please share right now with all your friends and contacts. You can also watch on Twitter. A surprisingly large number of you are watching on your telephone. Some are even watching on Instagram, filmed by my good wife, about whom more later. And you can watch on Twitch. You can watch on my Telegram channel. I forget what the name of it is, but you'll find it easily enough. It's t.me forward slash George Galloway. There you go. Now, as I said earlier, that paragon of virtue, Sir Nick Clegg, has decided for us who we can see on social media. We can see everyone of whom he approves, but we cannot see Donald Trump. Personally, I think it's all gone rather boring over in the United States, certainly on social media. I want to see what the orange man is saying, but Sir Nick has decided otherwise. You couldn't make up, especially in the context that George W. Bush is literally being hugged and kissed like an old stuffed teddy bear, particularly by the liberal establishment. Hey, he only killed a million people. Mission accomplished, George. But he didn't say mean and ugly things on social media, perhaps because he doesn't know how to work a mobile telephone. He was once found trying to put coins in the top of his mobile telephone. George Bush, now a liberal hero. Donald Trump, a non-person. Do you remember what they used to say about non-persons in the Soviet Union? Remember what some of them even said about the banning orders on the likes of Winnie Mandela during the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa. Well, Donald Trump is now a non-person. We'll be asking the coolest of American cats, Garland Nixon, in the course of the show, whether that will help or hinder Donald Trump, if I were him. Indeed, if I were anybody, if I were Russia, if I were China, I'd be putting a lot of effort and money into building alternative social media platforms to the dictatorship of Sir Nick Clegg, wouldn't you? And we'll be talking, as I said, about Sir Keir Starmer. They said the Blairites, he's back, by the way, Tony Blair. Did you see that? He's now laying out uh, the uh, future for Britain post 
COVID-19, he said that we ought to be discriminatory against those that have not been vaccinated, that people who have been vaccinated should have more rights than people who have not been vaccinated. But hey, it's a voluntary vaccination, don't you know? You'll just be officially, legally discriminated against if you haven't been. That would be a bit of a nightmare to administer in your local weather spoons, don't you think? But anyway, people say Tony Blair's going to come back and take over the Labour Party. But why would he need to? He's already controlling the Labour Party. Uh, the block of wood called Keir Starmer that leads the Labour Party does exactly what his master's voice tells him to do, both on domestic policy and on international policy. You may have seen a rather large article in the Sunday Times today, adorned in part by my picture. It's the best article I've ever had in the Sunday Times, at least since Andrew Neil was the editor and published a double-page spread of mine from Eritrea and Ethiopia. And that was 40 years ago. So uh, it's an interesting story, but it makes the point that Labour has lost one brick after another from its formerly impregnable red wall and maybe about to you lose another. The Muslim brick in the red wall. After all, why would any Muslim support Keir Starmer? Why? Keir Starmer has publicly declared himself as the chief shill of Israel in British politics. He's expelled Jeremy Corbyn from the Labour Party over that issue. He has ruthlessly expunged all trace of support for the Palestinian people from the Labour Party's ranks. If you don't believe me and you're in the Labour Party, tweet right now that Israel is an apartheid state, which is something that many of the greatest Israelis openly write in their newspapers every day. But if you're in the Labour Party in Britain and you say it, you will promptly be expelled. That means that the late Mr. Ben would have had to be expelled. Uh, Ken Livingston already has been expelled. I've been expelled. Jeremy Corbyn has been expelled. Chris Williamson, an indefatigable campaigner for Palestine, he's been expelled. <laughs> Why would anybody that supports the Palestinians support Labour? And that is what the Sunday Times is saying. Having lost the working class with their absolutely obvious detestation of the things that the British working class believe in, how they live their lives, how they use their language, uh, what television they like, what newspapers they like, having lost the working class and not actually being entirely woke enough to hold on to confidently the metropolitan uh, commentariat and literati, the Labour Party is like a cork adrift on the ocean. It doesn't know where it's going. It's not in control of where it's going, as you're going to see again in the north in the next few weeks. So we'll be asking, of course, where does Labour go after Keir Starmer? Because trust me on this, Keir Starmer will shortly be no more. Do they go further towards the Blairites, 
or do they move backwards uh, to the Burnhamites? There you are, I've just uh, coined a phrase. Andy Burnham, the elected mayor of Greater Manchester, suffers the considerable disadvantage of not having a seat in Parliament, but somebody could stand down and create a by-election. Wouldn't that be a good thing? And let him in, uh, they hope. So uh, any number of things can happen in Labour, and we'll be talking about them. The third wave of the coronavirus is apparently upon us. It's called the, uh, is it the Delta variant now? It used to be called the Indian variant, but that was adjudged to be not politically correct. On the subject of politically correct, because I've got a bit of land now, I switched on the archers this morning try and get some agricultural tips. There's everything in the archers now except agriculture. They'll be closing down the farm and turning it into a vegan cafe before very long. There was every piece of wokery right down to a campaign against plastics and a bout of alcoholism just uh, to top it up. But on the subject of wokery, where was I? What was I talking about? The situation that we now have in the British media is perfectly absurd. And the scene is set for Andrew Neil, the aforementioned, and his GB News, which starts next week, I think, to inflict devastating damage on the BBC's audience and on Sky for that matter, but particularly on the BBC. The BBC, especially Radio 4, has turned into a festival of wokery. Right after the hour of the Archer's wokery, the opening statement on Desert Island Discs could have been actually a political broadcast, propaganda. That's all it was. Introducing a woman judge as if she was a hater of men, who turned out to be actually a very fine woman. I could see why they were building her up, because she's about to chair, as the coroner, the uh, inquest into poor Dawn Sturgis, the woman who was killed in Salisbury from a perfume bottle, which her partner retrieved from her from a charity bin some weeks after the attack on the Scripples. Curious, that story. Anyway, maybe this fine woman judge will get to the bottom of it in the, uh, the inquest that she will shortly begin. But the BBC is uniquely vulnerable to Andrew Neil because millions of people in Britain have decided that the BBC hates them, hates how they vote, hates how they think, hates how they live their lives. We'll see. Perhaps we'll have a media expert on next week about that. This week I'll be asking Patrick Christie's about it too. We'll be talking to Moats Medic, Dr. Ranjit Bra, on the third wave of the coronavirus. We'll be asking him what's going to happen to all these poor people that went to the Algarve when it was on the green list but are now marooned there that it's on the amber list and are going to have to quarantine when they come back uh, to the United Kingdom. We'll be asking Dr. Brar 
what is likely to happen on the 21st of June. Is it Freedom Day? Are we returning to normal? Or will uh, the U-turn that we've seen before be executed again? And we'll be talking to the greatest living Israeli, Gideon Levy, the author and journalist on the Haaretz newspaper in Israel, who spoke to us just a couple of weeks ago during uh, the savage bombardment and mass murder, half of the victims being women and children. Half, exactly, half. Not militants, not terrorists, not fighters, not soldiers. Half of those murdered were women and children. And you may recall uh, that the great Gideon Levy said to me that uh, Netanyahu going won't make any difference because the problem is not Netanyahu. Well, we're going to quickly find out if he was right because Netanyahu is out. Or is he out? <laughs> you know he's come back before. But we'll be asking Gideon what happens if he is out who are the people who are then coming in? Two friends of mine were arrested in the last 24 hours in Jerusalem. I have been telling you for a decade that the real heart of the Palestinian matter is not in Gaza, but in Jerusalem, and moreover, in the holy places in Jerusalem. But the area around the old city, which is called the Sheikh Jarrah area, is home to thousands of the remaining Palestinians in the old city of Jerusalem. And the settlers are trying to destroy their houses and replace them with more illegal settlements. Two women, both friends of mine, or in one case her family, her father is a friend of mine, were arrested. Uh, but the one who is personally a friend of mine is the well-named Jevara Boderi, called after Che Guevara himself. She's the brave, intrepid Al Jazeera correspondent in Jerusalem. She was grabbed whilst filming what's happening in the Sheikh Jarrah era, area, and her arm, hand, broken by the brutes of the Israeli occupation force. She was taken to prison. Prison for filming what was happening for the news on Al Jazeera, where she was kept in the baking heat and not allowed to take off her journalist's flak jacket. She's now been released. Her arm is in a sling. But she's been released only on the condition uh, that she does not do any more reporting in Sheikh Jarrah for the next 16 days. The logic of that, <laughs> go figure. Maybe they hope the story will go away in the next 16 days. I assure them it will not, and neither will the well-named Jevara Boderi. But the other uh, woman, Muna Al-Kurd, is the daughter of a friend of mine in Jerusalem. Nabil Al-Kurd was sitting outside the police station while both his daughter 
and his son were inside. They were inside because they film with their mobile phone what is actually happening in the Sheikh Jarrah area of Jerusalem. And they put it out to the world. No more than that. No stone throwing, no weapons, just a mobile phone filming what's happening. Now, Muna has been released in the last hour or two, uh, but her brother is still, as far as I know, behind bars. So if the intention was to somehow cut off the supply of news and information from the ethnic cleansing going on in Jerusalem, I assure those responsible for it that it will fail, at least as long as the mother of all talk shows still has breath. You know, and it's a very, thank you for, you know, I, I'm a big fan of your show, Gigi. Great, great debate, great. And I'm Scottish. I'm very passionate about what's happening there, you know. I had a great mom. She was Scottish, Mary McLeod. She taught me well. She taught me well at everything, including golf. I love Scotland, and I love the Scottish food. It's great food. I said to Melania, you know, haggis. Look at that. What's more than, more Scottish than that? Me. I am that haggis. She said, what, thin-skinned and full of crap? Well, let's get the perspective of an American of note, Garland Nixon, in my opinion, the finest independent political correspondent working in the United States. My good friend and colleague, Garland Nixon, joins me now. Garland, welcome back to the show. Uh, let me start with that one, if I may, because I've just had a spirited discussion with a caller from Florida who uh, bemoans the banning of people like me, progressives, he called me, though I, I kind of shuddered at that description because I know the other people that are called progressives, uh, but uh, fully supports the ban on Donald Trump. Where do you stand on that? And what do you think of the decision to continue Trump's social media parda? Well, I absolutely oppose it. And, you know, to be transparent, I am on the National Board of Directors for the American Civil Liberties Union um, in Maryland. So I, I mean, in, uh, in, the, in the U.S., so I consider myself a civil libertarian. And I believe that if people disagree with Donald Trump, then they should hear what he has to say. He should have an opportunity to make his point and they should have an opportunity to opportunity to rebut it. I believe that a democracy works best with informed voters and having Donald Trump um, give his point, his position allows people to be informed. Um, you know, we should be informed not only of those that we agree with, but those that we disagree with. And it, it, it leads me to believe that there is nefarious intent behind those who um, who would ban Donald Donald Trump's speech. You know, it has been said by many that, you know, every other word Donald Trump says is a lie. But that also means that every other word he says is true. And I actually believe the reason Donald Trump is really banned is because every now and then he will hit the nail on the head and on that odd occasion he will attack the empire he will attack neoliberalism whether genuinely or disingenuously he will attack the machine in a way that no one else will and i look forward to those odd occasions and well, unfortunately, people a, like a, a, even a stopped clock is right twice a day and trump was definitely right twice a day and and wrong uh, 
most of the rest, but the twice a day was sometimes significant, as you uh, say. Question is, is this non-personing, this airbrushing of Donald Trump from the uh, political spectrum, is it working, Garland? Uh, is uh, absence making the heart grow fonder uh, of Trump amongst his voting base, which, let's not forget, was in excess of 70 million voters? Uh, or uh, is it out of sight, out of mind? Uh, it's absolutely not working because the foundational belief behind banning Donald Trump is flawed. It's um, the boogeyman politics that Donald that that the Donald Trump political phenomenon is only about the individual Donald Trump, and it only came about because Donald Trump became um, the president in 2016. People like me argue that Donald Trump is the result of a particular neoliberal and neoconservative politics that caused people to look for something else. In fact, I know people who completely disagree with Donald Trump and voted for him. You know, it was kind of a Brexit-like thing that said, I just want to take a sledgehammer to the system. Well, those people are still there. The dynamics have gotten worse. Um, because of COVID and people, you know, watching Jeff Bezos and the and the billionaires um, clean up while everybody else suffers. So I think it, it's it, it does no good because it ignores the dynamics that created the phenomenon that is Donald Trump. Is he still alive and kicking? Can you tell us? As far as we know, Donald Trump is still out there. He's still making noise. And again, some of the things that Donald Trump says, I just shake my head and say, that's absurd. But I don't think that Donald Trump is going away. And I, uh, I don't think Trumpism is going away. I think if Donald Trump moved, you know, just went mute tomorrow, I don't think it would be mad would matter. There would be someone there to voice that Donald Trump position. And there are people there who are thirsty for that uh, brand of politics. So I don't think any of this will work. It's futile. Let's turn to his, uh, his nemesis. Um, I've seen videos uh, of speeches and other events uh, by President Biden uh, with only a few hundred viewers on them. Uh, and I can testify from this side of the pond, Joe Biden, President Biden, almost never says anything of interest to me. Is that echoed in the United States? Are they already bored of him? You know, uh, it's hard to say because, uh, you know, I think many people in the, in, the, in, the, in the country view Joe Biden as, you know, representative of, of neoliberalism, representative of, of, of globalist politics. So, you know, while Joe Biden, many look at him as, you know, somewhat incompetent, I think um, a lot of people in the country look at him as part of a political movement, as it were, a very powerful political movement. Um, and so I don't think the individual Joe Biden is, um, um, is, is viewed as uh, a president would have been 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, I kind of get that uh, impression. Anyway, turning to media matters, uh, you keep a very close eye uh, on the U.S. media. What's rattling? What are the big stories there in the U.S.? Well, there are a couple of stories. One of them is, of course, Hunter Biden, you know, is the story that just that, that will never go away. And disappeared just in time for the election. 
Uh, yes, it was disappeared. It was uh, extraordinarily, extraordinarily rendi you know, renditioned by the mainstream media. But the um, the latest being uh, the Blue Star Strategies, which is a, which was a, a lobbying firm, which now it's being very it's it's very clear that Hunter Biden and the Obama political machine, the Democratic political machine, were kind of working in concert to enrich a lot of people um, related to the to the to the the globalists. They they basically went to Ukraine and got rich. What's interesting about this is the way that it's being portrayed by the mainstream media. They're saying, well, Blue Star strategy, strategies didn't register as a, as a foreign agent. Well, that's you know, a fairly minor infraction. It would be the equivalent of Garland Nixon parks in front of a, uh, a, an apartment building, blows the building up and kills 100 people. And then the news reports tomorrow, Garland Nixon illegally parks in front of, uh, in front of apartment building. That's the way, you know, it's, it's obvious they're trying to hide something here because there's so much to this story. It just keeps growing. And uh, I mean, are other politicians implicated in this? Is Joe Biden implicated in it? Yeah, there are pictures that have come out where that show Joe Biden um, actually at dinner with business friends of uh, Hunter Biden, while in fact he claimed that he didn't know anything. You know, the other thing that's being very clear, and, and I think it's important now, is Joe Biden runs around the world telling people that he's going to lead a movement of democracies against autocracies. And one thing that's being being you know abundantly clear is that when the United States overthrew the Ukraine in 2014, Joe Biden was in fact an autocrat. Well, well, there's little doubt of that now that he was that, that he and his uh, family members were were really cleaning up. One of the things that came out is that Blue Star Strategies, and this was a um, a consulting firm, a PR firm that was working with his son Hunter Biden, was allowed to participate on on a White House conference call um, with, uh, with the State Department, members of the inner circle of the White House and with um, people in Ukraine. They were, and after the, um, after that call, they sent a memo, they sent it to Burisma, they sent it to a number of people in, in Ukraine and they used that call to make money. So when you start looking into what happened, it was obvious, it was blatant corruption, but the US media covers it as the only thing they're covering is the most minor infraction of Blue Star strategies. And that is they didn't fill out their proper forms to show that they were working for Ukrainian companies. And we've seen people have done that who are allowed to go back and to fill the reforms out and not be prosecuted. So I suspect that there is a massive cover up and I find it hard to believe that the son of the sitting president who was enriching himself, who the president aware of was going on and even though he denied it, was not involved in corruption, but that he won't be, um, excuse me, I find it hard to believe that he will be found guilty because it leads right back to Joe Biden. And my other point was Joe Biden's going around the world telling people he's standing up for democracies to oppose autocracies. And he himself was an autocrat. He himself ran a country with authoritarianism, replaced the attorney general with a person who wasn't even a lawyer. The guy that he replaced um, the attorney general, I'm using that term, of Ukraine with wasn't even a lawyer at the time that that attorney general was investigating his son's company. It is absolutely one of the filthiest stories you've ever seen, but the media here is doing everything they can to try to brush over it. Well, not here on the mother of all talk shows, Garland Nixon, thank you as always for uh, joining us. <laughs> Hello, ministers. Welcome to the government's media training day. Is everybody here?
Yes. Oh. Incorrect. You must never give a yes or no answer. Understood? I really don't understand what's going on. Sorry, sir. Why can't we answer yes or no? A very, very sensible question. I'm glad that you that you've asked it, and I can see why you think that. But that's not how we do things at the moment. See, that's how it's done. Who's that that I can hear sniffling? Hancock. Glad. Ah, I see you've been practicing. Somebody go and get him someone to blow his nose off. <laughs> if somebody asks you your opinion, remember, you don't have one. And no matter how simple the question is, never answer yes or no. Got it? Glad. 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 Now, uh, Dr. Ranjit Bra uh, is with us. From the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, he's had a rest over the last couple of weeks, but we had to bring him back tonight because there are developments in this story, and I'm glad to say that he joins us. Now, Dr. Ranjit, welcome back. Always a pleasure to see you. Um, are we in a third wave? Is the Delta variant, uh, formerly known as the Indian uh, variant, a real and present danger to the June 21st Freedom Day, in your view? George, thanks for having me back. Good to be with you. Uh, sorry to be discussing this once again. Um, I, I think yes and no. So it's a the, the Indian variant clearly is real. It's caused a lot of chaos in India. And what we've seen throughout the pandemic is anywhere that the you know, virus really runs rampant out of control, we're likely to see the emerging uh, of a slight variant strain. There are, there are as we've said uh, many times, more than 4,000 variants. But this India variant, the Delta variant B1617.2, does now seem to be responsible for around 60% of new uh, infections in Britain. So it's become the dominant variant here. But, you know, before, before getting carried away with that fact, I mean, I think it's really important to examine three questions. One is, um, you know, is it more infectious? Is it more dangerous? And, you know, to what extent does it have um, resistance to vaccinations? And what we seem to be seeing is that, it, yes, it is slightly more infectious. Um, there are variations on exactly how much, but a little bit. Uh, is it more serious? Difficult to say. Um, there's only very mild evidence to suggest it's in, in any way more serious clinically um, uh, slightly higher rates of hospitalization seem to be seen with it, but those are over overall still very low. And in terms of resistance to the vaccine, we know the South Africa variant, the now called beta variant, uh, B1351, um, was the um, a, a variant most resi resistant to the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine in particular. And it does seem that uh, this India variant has some of those features. However, if we look overall at the statistics, hospitalizations in this country at the moment are at an all-time low. Um, less, much less than 1% of people in our hospitals have COVID. Um, there are an increase, slight increase in the cases to about 30,000 a week. But deaths, again, are at an all-time low since the very start of the pandemic. So 
you know, personally, uh, independent sage who, who I have a lot of um, time for and respect for, obviously a very august and expert body of opinion, uh, think that we should be sounding alarm. And they in particular point that we point out that we should do our best to still have in place excellent healthcare measures of, you know, isolation and, and support packages of isolation for those who have found to have this uh, variant so that we can stop it from spreading. But still, it's likely to be the case that people have who have vaccination are essentially immune. And so what I think we have done, you know, remember right at the beginning, um, uh, there was a lobby of opinion who said we need to let the vaccine, uh, the, the virus um, run through the population. Um, and protect the elderly. Now, we couldn't protect the elderly. That was the fault in that scenario. But now, effectively, through the vaccination program, I believe that they are uh, uh, really protected and that we have effectively uncoupled the spread of the vaccine through the remaining population who are able to get it from those worst effects of uh, hospitalizations and deaths. Of course, you know, we'll have to see in, in reality whether that's the case. But my personal feeling is this is not um, a third wave of the kind of magnitude that we saw in other countries or indeed with our second wave here, George. So if you were the health minister, and I so wish you were, would you uh, be going full speed ahead on the 21st of this month or uh, would you retain some of the restrictions? I personally would uh, ease the restrictions, but equally... You know, it needs a careful process of monitoring and vigilance. You know, I, I do think it's a, a real problem, and we should be testing and isolating people who have that variant, supporting those who are economically most marginalised, so that they can do that to stop its spread. But absolutely, I would, I would personally um, uh, continue as we currently are with easing of restrictions, George. Now, let me ask you, if I may. Uh... Taking up the taking advantage of your being here, it's a different subject. I read somewhere that in a matter of days from now, uh, the NHS is going to sell all of our data and details. What could you tell us about that? Uh, that is actually true, George. So on the 21st, um, the NHS data, all data taken from the time of your birth, birth records. Um, right up until the time of your death, and that would include um, maternity data, includes data of your mental health, data of your sexual health, um, data of your sexual preferences. So all kinds of extremely sensitive data that really you would only share with your GP on the basis that they're going to use it or health professional on the basis they're going to use it to help to treat you, um, has become a valuable commodity and resource for couple of reasons. One for research, and that's how we're being encouraged to think about it. But there's another um, emerging threat, which is that, you know, um, increasingly, as waiting lists increase, on the, before the pandemic, waiting lists were already at an all-time high. Coming out of the pandemic, we know that waiting lists are about 5 million people in our country waiting for operations. And the, the president of the Royal College of Surgeons weighed into this debate uh, this week uh, in a slightly you know, unhelpful way, I think. Uh, he said, look, if people come back to the NHS as they're doing, there's going to soon be 10 million people on the waiting list. And he said, we need a radical solution. We need to think like grown-ups about this. And he pointed at increasing specialization and separation of surgical services on the one hand, and to carry on with our relationship with the private sector, where we've been giving away 
actually tens of billions of pounds to the private sector to subsidize them during this time. Now, the private sector themselves say the largest and most profitable section of healthcare, which is growing at the moment, is the self-paying sector. And you can see those things are directly linked. If there are 10 million people waiting for operations, and some of them may be relatively routine, but many of them will be life-changing, and some of them will be life-saving operations. And if you're waiting for those and you simply think, well, whatever I've got, my health is the most important thing. I just need to get around this incredible weight. No matter how much you might support the NHS, that's the reality you're presented with. Of course, people will go into the private sector to try and look for a solution to try and get around that queue. And that queue has not come out accidentally. That's become a, a, as part of deliberate policy um, by reducing capacity and now having sufficiently reduce capacity that you know people are waiting for ambulances people are waiting for operations and and the answer they get is you know the, to their complaints oh well, sorry we were busy sorry we don't have capacity you know so people those people have been forced into the private sector now they will some of them will self-pay some of them will have insurance and insurance companies currently rely on if you if you've ever gone through the process of insurance for a mortgage but equally it's the same for health cover um, they will rely on a questionnaire that they give you, a very detailed questionnaire, and what they will tend to do is exclude you from coverage from all the conditions you have already had. So all this data, which is going to go to you know, unknown third sources, but, but something that's been very uh, clearly driven towards, it will be available for sale. And it's quite clear that currently we're looking at the real, again, reorganization of our healthcare system. Uh, and, and large um, insurance companies are coming into the management of these clinical networks. Um, clinical commissioning groups have been running by health boards and the insurance industry and private medicine will have a large part to play in those. And they will be the ones actually making the running both in the NHS and increasingly outside the NHS. And for them to have overall access to masses of patient data is clearly going to be key for them to be able to derive maximum profit. But it's not going to be key um, in either protecting information of patients who have quite legitimately surrendered it to their healthcare professionals to help them be treated. That will not be respected. Um, and it's not going to be the best thing for actually delivering them insurance-based care because they will find, as the Americans have found, uh, much to their chagrin and regret, that actually when they need healthcare the most, that is the healthcare that they're often least able to access for conditions or predispositions that they have. So it's extremely sensitive data. It is happening on the 21st of June. It is possible to write to your GP and opt out. I will post um, perhaps on my Twitter feed a link um, to, to some articles about this and also to uh, some documents about how you can opt out. I personally will be opting out. I'll encourage my family to opt out. Um, it is part and parcel of a number of packages delivered by a series of administrations, Labour and Tory, aimed at persistent privatisation of our NHS. I think it's a really, really clear and present danger to patients uh, and to our NHS, George. Well, uh, you could knock me down with a feather, and it's my own fault for not knowing that. Uh, I assumed the data we're talking about was anonymised. But from what you say, medical information about me that I imparted to my doctor is going to be sold for profit uh, and, and used against me. And uh, why didn't the Labour Party and the, uh, the opposition in Britain, why didn't the unions run a huge opt-out campaign if you can opt out? 
I think the uh, pub, pub, I think it's a good question. I think the publicity has been very low. So until very recently, uh, you know, it, it, this has been speculation. Uh, there was again uh, similar to other changes like the clinical networks we've, we've been talking about, um, which are meant to be just for clinical excellence, but in fact are driving towards privatisation. There's been low level advertising and, um, if you like, public consultation. There has to be some public consultation. They simply put it on the NHS website. It's obscure. It's hard to find. It's not been widely publicized. And so I think there's been a, a deliberate stealth policy. It was good. The whole of the pandemic has been a good time to bury this this entire news. Uh, Matt Hancock's white, white paper, paper is precisely aimed at putting forward these changes and other changes, one big health pot, both for social care and the NHS, all under clinical commission groups with these new boards who will run it, at whom, yes, there will be some clinicians, yes, there'll be some representatives from hospitals, yes, there'll be some GP representatives, but there'll also be third party representatives who are business representatives from the health industry, and these people would be administering the entire health budget. So the, the, that's the content of Matt Hancock's white paper. And in that process, um, the process of tendering um, competitively has been removed so that actually large um, contracts can simply be awarded without much scrutiny, much in the way that we've seen throughout the pandemic. The Tory <laughs> government has been giving huge grants to their of 45 million for testing, yeah. 10 million here, 20 million there. So this process will continue. Uh, it's more opaque, it's more corrupt. Um, and it will become the norm and it will not help us to access excellent healthcare. It will um, jeopardize our, uh, our, our information. There won't, it won't be very clear or transparent where that information is going or who has it. But the clear beneficiaries and drivers behind this are the big insurance lobby. And we know Sir Simon Stevens, um, who was a sign of United Health, he was the, uh, the uh, chief executive of their international expansion department, specifically targeting how do we access new markets in large state-run sectors. And then, lo and behold, he comes and he's running the NHS. He's announced he's going to be retiring from his current position as the uh, chief executive of NHS England. Step down. I thought that would be the end of his story. Maybe he'll get his lordship and retire. But no, it's, it's also seen uh, on Hansard, there's been a record of consultations suggesting that he may, in fact, end up as the minister overseeing not just the health system, but the health system and the social security system as they're merged. But on the basis of self-payer increased insurance uh, penetration and increased privatization. So he'll continue to have a very major role, despite his very clear conflict of interest that he's been the chief executive for 10 years and no doubt remains intimately linked with the private health insurance. Lobby. And did, did, did Labour oppose this? Uh, and if they did, uh, how come I didn't notice it? Labour have never opposed this. I mean, you'll be aware of my, my friend and campaigner, Bob Gill, uh, his excellent documentary, The Great NHS Heist, in which he highlights some of these issues. During that time we was making that documentary, he actually went to Jeremy Corbyn's secretary, uh, 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 shadow secretary for health, laid this all before him. Um, Jonathan Ashworth, I believe, was he may still be the secretary of uh, shadow secretary. Uh, um, How could uh, we tell? For health. Yeah, and, but, but it's, it absolutely it's like a non-entity. So he had no interest in it. There was never been under Corbyn or under anyone else any opposition to this from uh, Labour. So Labour essentially pre present this as a fait accompli. We've got to be realistic. We've got to just work within the boundaries of what we can do. And therefore, they don't really even raise it in questioning. They don't even, you know, raise it to voice opposition, even symbolically, let alone uh, have an alternative policy. So it tends to be the case that there's been a very clear handing of the baton from uh, you know, John Major, uh, from Thatcher, John Major, to, to the, of course, 
under Blair years, PFI and all of the expensive uh, uh, penetration of capital and the extraction of profit from the NHS was really ramped up. And that's carried on throughout the subsequent administrations right to the present day without really a, a murmur or a whisper from any of uh, the Labour Party's MPs and certainly not from their, um, sh from their front bench, uh, uh, George. Amazing. By the way, here's the uh, opt-out, NHS data opt-out website, your-data-matters.service.nhs.uk. I think it's there on the screen now. Lastly, Doctor... Um, I mean, of course, no disrespect to your profession, but you'll know as a, as a student of these matters uh, that the NHS only came into being in the first place over the uh, trenchant opposition of these royal colleges, the head of one of which you quoted earlier. And Nye Bevan said, uh, when asked how he'd managed to get the doctors uh, to drop their opposition to the creation stuffed of the mouth. NHS, gold, yeah. we stuffed their mouths with gold. In the light of what you've just told me, are some of these doctors' organizations hungry for a bit more gold? It's no secret, George, that uh, the very top echelons of the medical profession, whether that's the British Medical Association, uh, whether that's any of the Royal Colleges, um, you know, end up uh, maybe as lords if they play their cards right. They help the government with their policy. They provide uh, a respectable and trusted face of government policy. And then they are in turn rewarded. And that's, of course, tends to be the same small fraction who benefit very greatly from private practice. Um, you know, I'm not suggesting the abolition of private practice. It's hard to abolish private practice while you have private housing, private health in general. So, you know, but what's quite clear is those people who benefit greatly from a system of increased privatization see that they, their interests run one way and perhaps don't acknowledge to themselves that the interests of the patient, the country, the workers, or the workers class in general run in quite a different direction. I mean, I have read accounts of GPs predating the NHS, you know, when it was an act of charity to go and visit a sick child, when doctors would engineer the situation not to embarrass their patient, they'd leave their gloves or their or their hats behind in a home, so they'd have an excuse to go and pick it up and re-examine a sick child. Are we really wanting to go back to that state of affairs? I mean, I've already seen that uh, some hospital staffs are in such kind of skeleton situation that they're unable to cope with just the basic demands of the people calling upon them. It's increasingly hard to get an NHS appointment. Matt Hancock has been actively promoting Babylon Health, essentially a, an app that you talk to that replaces doctors valued at billions. So there's constant, you know, a, a stream of ideas how to denude the NHS of funds and put them into the hands of wealthy corporations. And of course, just as when you want to overthrow or dominate the economy of a, of a third world country, you need someone inside that country who's going to cooperate with you, who's going to be your puppet. Yes, there'll be a, a faction of well-heeled, relatively well-off members of the, of the profession who will go along with it. They're not the majority. The majority care, deeply love and uh, the NHS. I think it's a great honor, as I do, to be able to see patients, uh, to treat them free of charge. I've never had to in my whole life, saving you know, literally saving thousands of lives, uh, performing thousands of operations, um, never had to worry whether my patient could afford 
the treatment only ever considered what was in their best interest. That's a situation I very much want to preserve. What we need is a very broad-paced campaign against this. But I'm afraid to say that the mainstream political parties, Labour included, and Labour linked in a thousand ways to most of the campaign groups, whether it's against the war, whether it's against privatisation, and always they want to lead the direction of that campaign back towards the objectives of the Labour Party, which are to get a Labour MP elected. That's not what these campaigns need to be about. They need to be about preserving the NHS for future generations because it makes a huge impact to their lives, to our lives, to the lives of ordinary workers. I won't be able to afford you know, a, a private care, George. I'm quite sure that the average working class person in this country won't. And if they knew this was the direction that their policies are constantly driving up, if they were honest and open about it, our politicians and the business class, there's absolutely no way that they would have that support. And in that way, you know, Bob is quite right in referring to this as the great NHS heist, as it's a great, a great conspiracy against the British public, precisely because, you know, it's peddled on the basis of lies by, by for example, Tory backbenchers who in my lifetime I've seen referring to the NHS as a Stalinist institution because it's not based on the sound principles, in their opinion, of private interest, private business. So this is what we're dealing with. Uh, a system in crisis, trying to maximise its profits in any way it can, reducing wages, reducing pain, conditions of working people, epidemics of ho homelessness and poverty that we're seeing coming out of this pandemic, out of this world economic recession. And one of the ways they seek to preserve themselves is to reduce our social wage, make those who can pay for healthcare and reduce the access uh, of those who can't. That is what we're facing, George. Well, I'd like to say it was a pleasure uh, talking to you. It was certainly a privilege. And thanks very much for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Thank you, thanks, Dr. George. Bra. From the makers of Track and Trace comes the Boris Johnson sat-nav. Right, uh, next right. Uh, no, left. I, I mean left. Uh, what? Yes, I, yes, no, this left. Oh, cracky, you've missed it, bugger. Um, oh, bloody Tories. Or, or have you? Ah, uh, turn around. Or in fact, don't turn around. Carry on. Yes. You have arrived at your destination. You're watching and or listening to the mother of all talk shows. The million strong audience of this global university and one of the reasons for the success of this show is the caliber of guests that we regularly bring to you you've already had two examples of that this evening you're about to get a very special third example he is the columnist on the haaretz newspaper i call him though he's far too modest to concur the greatest living Israeli. He's Gideon Levy, and he joins me now. Uh, Gideon, thank you once again for coming on the show. You scolded me uh, a little in your gentlemanly way a couple of weeks ago uh, when I seemed to imply that Netanyahu was the problem. You uh, pointed out that the problem existed long before Netanyahu, and will certainly uh, last far longer than he will. Uh, he is no more, or perhaps you might want to tell us differently, and if he is no more uh, to be Prime Minister of Israel, what can you tell us about the people who are about to come after him? 
Thank you, George. It's always a great pleasure to be with you. And let's speak also about the quality of the host, not only the quality of the guests. Yes, thank you. Which makes the show, thank the you. mother of all talk shows. Thank you, sir. As about uh, Netanyahu, as it seems right now, and I mean, it will be sensational if I'm wrong. Usually I'm not wrong, but this time it's really exceptionally sensational. It seems that Netanyahu will have to step down either on the coming Wednesday or next week, Monday, the latest. This, uh, for many Israelis, it means almost getting out to freedom, getting rid of the great uh, Nicolau Ceausescu of Israel. I don't share it. I don't share it. I think that the Zionist leftists in Israel make their life too easy by believing that the only problem is Netanyahu, or even the main problem is Netanyahu, and once we we'll get rid of him, Israel will become this peaceful and just place. I have news for you. This is not going to happen. One right-wing nationalist government is going to replace another right-wing nationalist government. And I'm even not sure which one of the two is going to be more extreme, more nationalistic, more racist, and more standing for the Jewish uh, supremacy in this country. It's a melancholy prospect, and you can see why after all these decades of the Nikolai Ceausescu of Israeli politics, as you brilliantly put it, uh, you can see why people uh, feel cheered by his, uh, his political uh, way going, uh, but it would be foolhardy in the extreme to imagine uh, that anything fundamentally will change. Although, there is this difference, isn't there? Uh, if I may digress, uh, one of the most bizarre coalitions in British political history was the Fox North Coalition. Charles James Fox, the greatest of all British parliamentarians, man who supported the American Revolution, supported the French Re Revolution, tabled a motion congratulating the people of France on the execution of their king and queen, formed a government with the utter reactionary Lord North. I'll not bore you with all the reasons why, but it didn't last long. Will this coalition, containing some very hard right uh, Israeli nationalist politicians, and three members, I think, of uh, an Islamist uh, Palestinian Arab faction. Will such a coalition possibly uh, continue for long? If it will stay as small as it is right now, namely it is based on a majority of one seat, of one member of parliament, by definition this cannot last for long because in any given moment, they will be found the parliamentarian who will be unsatisfied and say, I'm going to make this government fall. The idea is that after this government will start to function, there might be some other parties who will join this government, and then it can, can last for very long, even for full four years. Nobody knows. Tell us about this uh, Palestinian 
uh, Arab uh, Islamist faction. How representative are they of Israel's Palestinian population and how Islamist are they? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So, first of all, uh, just for our listeners and viewers who. who no less, let me just remind everyone that we have 20% of Israeli population of the citizens of Israel without the occupied territories are Israeli Palestinians or as the Israelis like to call them Israeli Arabs. Those 20% are highly discriminated, but they are part and parcel of the democratic gain, they can vote, they can be elected, and even though they were quite excluded from the political game until now, came this guy who was part of the join list and decided he goes for a new way, namely to join any government and to try to get achievements, mainly economical achievements, but not only, to the community of the Israeli-Palestinians. Mansour Abbas does not care much about occupation, freedom for the Palestinians, civil rights, all those issues are marginal for him. He decided to devote himself to get better conditions from the relatively most privileged Palestinians, namely the Palestinians who have the Israeli citizenship. This attracted quite many Israeli Palestinians if he will will really deliver the goods. If he won't, he is finished. Uh, Right now, he seems like a very shrewd and sophisticated politician who can get quite a lot of things through negotiations. He is very conservative when it comes to to, uh, gays' rights and issues like this. He's extremely conservative. How much is his party uh, Muslim or, or fundamentalistic or religious? At least one member there is a secular Palestinian. So time will show where will they carry uh, this this vote. Now tell us who will be the new prime minister and his rotating partner. What can you give us a pen portrait, please, Gideon, of these two men? 
Naftali Bennett is uh, the, the, the coming prime minister who represents a small party of six people, six members out of 120, who couldn't make it in the former elections. He wasn't even elected by himself, and his list couldn't even get one seat into the parliament. Naftali Bennett comes from a national religious uh, family, being brought up in the United States, which gives him some kind of international flavor. He speaks uh, fluent English. He was very successful in high tech and made a lot of money. He lives not in a settlement, but in a bourgeois suburb of Tel Aviv. You, George, who spent some time in Tel Aviv, can know the name Ranana, where yes. which is known to Tel Aviv next to Atzliya. He has a nice house there, and his party is a very right-wing party, religious and extreme. The only thing is that they are more extreme than him, and he lost his way in a way, because part of the settlers were very suspicious about him. He doesn't live in the settlements. He is going to be the prime minister. Uh, time will show where does he stand exactly, because... He is married, for example, to a secular Jew, so there are questions how religious he is. He doesn't live in a settlement, so there are questions how um, nationalistic he is. But by the end of the day, we are dealing with a, with a tough right-winger, and time will show how talented he is. And Will he be able to govern with such small, limited political power? The other guy, Yair Lapid, who stands for a bigger party, the second biggest party in the parliament, he is a former TV host um, who represents the Israel Center, which is, by the end of the day, right-wingers in costume, right-wingers in disgust, because finally they are right-wingers, very bourgeois, very far of any kind of uh, willing to compromise with the Palestinians or recognizing their rights, recognizing the fact that there are two equal peoples in this part of the world with equal political and national rights. He's very far of recognizing all those things, very charismatic, and he will be prime minister after two years if everything will go well. But also him, unfortunately, I'm so sorry, I'm so skeptical tonight, but also Yair Lapid is not a promise for people like me. Finally, and I'm grateful for your time as always, what now happens to Mr. Netanyahu vis-a-vis -vis the criminal case against him? This is a long way to go. Obviously, as a non-prime minister, he is weaker vis-a-vis -vis the, the, the court, but it will take another two or three years at least. And I believe he will remain in the parliament, will be head of the opposition, and will do anything possible to, to have a comeback. And he might have a chance to come back while his trial will go on. And until this trial will not end, he can play politics as much as he wants. The end of the trial is still very far. Nobody knows how will it end. I think the charges are 
a bit ex exaggerated, but I don't see him coming out without any punishment. No way. Gideon Levy, a peerless summary of the political situation in Israel. Thank you very much indeed for it's joining us. Really Greatly good. appreciated. Now, the poll is going uh, great guns. 1,513 people have voted. 11% uh, of you are glad that Trump's social media ban has been extended for another two years. 81% of you uh, are not. And 8% of you think he should have been banned forever. You've still got time to vote on that on my Twitter feed and on my Telegram. Now, my next guest, I think, is a caller. It's Paul in Birkenhead on Israel. Go ahead, Paul. Uh, hi, George. Thanks hi there. For me Welcome, yeah, I just, sir. Go I ahead. I just wanted to mention about um, a petition that's on the government, uh, Houses of Parliament website about uh, placing um, sanctions against Israel. Yeah, there's so, a debate on the 14th of June, I think. Yes, there is. Uh, yeah, so, so it's a week tomorrow. Yeah. So I just wanted the people who don't know that if they could, it's over, uh, it was uh, 380, over 380,000. That's a big uh, petition. That's a big yeah. petition. It is. <laughs> and the rules are, uh, I'm a little rusty with uh, parliamentary rules. I hope to re-familiarize myself with them soon. But if you get more than 100,000 signatures, there must be a parliamentary debate on the subject. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. the, this petition beat that three times over and more. Yeah, so, but I'd still, I'd think, you know, still need, I think more, the more people, the better. So, uh, so what's the petition, so what's the there, petition called, Paul? And um, it's, I don't, I'm sure, it's just a... Palestine? Anyway, anybody just go on the Parliament website and just put in Israeli position, petition and okay. uh, you'll find it. It's on the top, it's there. Okay. There's, there is a number of petitions, anyways. But, yeah. And but actually, they want the one with the more than 300,000 signatures, yeah. just to maximize yeah. that. Uh, and yeah. uh, it calls for sanctions against Israel, so you can yeah. guarantee that the Labour Party will not be supporting it, which will no. do them some damage in some places. Well, hopefully. I mean, hopefully you uh, do some damage yourself on the uh, by-election next month. So, uh, Thank you, Paul. Very kind of you to say so. Fred is in Buxton. He's a new caller. Particularly welcome, therefore. Fred, go ahead. Hello, George. Take your time. Don't be nervous. I'm fine, George. <laughs> I have actually spoken to you before uh, on the um, the victory of a certain red club against a blue club. Oh, yes. Excellent. Do you remember I spoke to you that evening? Uh, uh, I and think I do. We celebrated we, briefly we together. We celebrated together. Let's hope we get another chance next season. Have you seen Absolutely. Ferguson's uh, documentary? I'm, I'm going to watch you with my son. It's really week. very powerful indeed. It's epic. It's moving. It's exciting. I'm glad my sons all watched it with me because, well, look, let's face it, in their lifetime, United have not been that much to look at. No, uh, they haven't. But they were no, able to see haven't. in this documentary just exactly what Manchester United were and hopefully will yeah. be again. Anyway, well, off I the football. So. What else would you like anyway, to talk yes. about? What I wanted to talk to you about was the BBC chiefly. Yeah. 
and why nobody's bringing them to account for the lies that they keep spinning, the government narrative they keep spinning. Um, you know, it's so frustrating to, to... I used to respect the BBC. I think now, the only people who respect the BBC anymore are those that are sucking at its engorged teat and those who want to. Uh, I couldn't agree more, I, I, George. I, I, I see no evidence of any love in the country anymore for the BBC. No, and as such, maybe it's time for the chopping block. Well, if, if I was in charge, I mean, if I was the Prime Minister of Britain, or let me put it another way, if I was Boris Johnson, uh, I would radically uh, cut the BBC. I would... Uh, slim it down. Yeah, but to be uh, fair, yeah. to, to be fair, George, at the moment, the BBC have been pretty useful to Boris. Do you well, not agree? To, no, I don't actually. Uh, I mean, of course, they preferred Boris Johnson to Jeremy Corbyn. And uh, all those that now complain about Boris Johnson were the very people uh, who, uh, who went the extra mile to do down Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, so to that extent, I agree. But the, the liberal agenda, the anti-Brexit agenda, the woke identity politics agenda, which is spreading like wildfire in the BBC, the Tories don't like that at all. Mm, yeah, well, perhaps we'll agree to disagree on that. But really, what I wanted to say also, George, I'm a 50-something bloke now. I've seen the best years of my life. I've watched my children grow up. I've met my grandchildren. I would be prepared to walk through Gaza with a Palestinian flag in one hand, a Union flag in the other hand, and a wreath around my neck and risk a bullet to lay that wreath at the wall for the children of Palestine. That's a very, very powerful call indeed, Fred, uh, and will be long remembered. Thank you very much for making it. Terence is in Norwich on the same subject. Go ahead, Terence. Good evening, Mr. Galloway. How are you? By the grace of God, I'm in good spirits. Thank you. Uh -huh. me, me too. And listening to that lady earlier and uh, fellow Manchester United supporter, Fred, um, it was pitiful to listen to that lady. I think the point, even Gideon Levy has missed the point that I'm going to make, is that these Abraham Accords that, that uh, Kushner had been over at the background doing these things, all his work, getting Tony Bennett to come in, a friend of his, Jared Kushner, the, the Abraham Accord, they just slipped that in. Gideon Levy, I think, missed that. I think his, his whole premise is great. However, don't take your eye off this, these Abraham Accords. You've got America with the UAE slipping in these heinous people. And I was really pleased to see last week uh, a sheik from the UAE going to the Al-Aqsa Mosbins. Forgive me for liking this, but he was spat at by a young kid and the other men were around him asking him questions. What are you doing here? This is actually America's game plan. They've slipped in these uh, so-called Abraham Accords and uh, Mr. Biden uh, is not changing it. Tony Bennett's not going to do anything different to uh, Netanyahu, who doesn't care one jot. And Mr. Levy was quite right there. The only small country that I can give credit to, uh, and the party Sinn Féin, they said the Israeli ambassador should be removed from Ireland. Uh, and I totally agree, because until you start sanctions, 
apartheid there is not going to change. Hannah Nasrawi, I, uh, a lot of respect for her, she said the two states is never going to happen now. It's finished, and I agree. There has to be cohabitation. How we get there, I think America is the big problem. The world needs to take sanctions against Israel, the way they're treating and killing ritually. They have not kept one UN resolution. Uh, and what a man said there earlier um, it was pretty fallen. I'd like to walk alongside him. I don't fear death at all as a Catholic. And uh, I'm proud that the man said that, and well said indeed. But don't lose sight of these Abraham Accords, Mr. Galloway. No, I shan't. Uh, I'm not as pessimistic as you about them. I think they'll die, they'll wither on the vine. But you're right, pernicious indeed they were. Thanks for the call. Nathaniel is in Berkshire. Uh, and he wants to talk about Trump and the social media ban. Go ahead, Nat. Uh, hi, George. Uh, big fan. Thank you. Uh, obviously, um, I'm a bit younger, like just turned 20, so I'm okay. not as take your experienced time. as you. No, take your time. Uh, no, yeah, I just wanted to basically get your side of this whole thing, because I, I was pretty much leaning on the side that it was a good thing to ban him, because, I mean, surely he incited the violence on that capital, so... Well, if we were to, Nathaniel, if we were to ban everyone who has incited violence, uh, there would be uh, very few politicians on uh, social media. Tony Blair's on social media, and he killed a million people in Iraq. Uh, the uh, deputy prime minister who made the decision to ban Donald Trump is uh, jointly and severally responsible for a great deal of violence and bloodshed uh, in the bombing of Syria, for example, and other uh, places. Um, John Major, uh, Jack Straw, none of these people would be on social media. Uh, George W. Bush wouldn't be on it. Uh, you'd have to ban people who are responsible for a great deal more violence uh, than Donald Trump was responsible for. But there are two issues of principle that need to be addressed, I think, by a young man like you. First of all, who will guard the guards? Who will decide who is to be banned? And secondly, if they can ban the President of the United States, they can ban anybody. They might not like the cut of your jib, Nat, or mine, perhaps more likely to be mine. And then they close me down and you can't hear what I've got to say, and I can't reach you. You see my point? Last word to you. Um, yeah, no, thank you. Uh, so you're just saying it's basically like a publicity stunt, and really... Well, I, I think they're hypocrites. Uh, I think yeah. if uh, social media is to be the public square, and that's what they told us it was, uh, that's the basis on which they are not treated as publishers. You see, if you have a newspaper, you decide who writes in your newspaper. But they said they were not a newspaper. They were not a television station. They were not responsible for what people said on their platform. And they made a lot of money by being free of the restrictions that would have come with being a publisher, with being a broadcaster. They could not be sued, for example, for what someone wrote on their wall or said on their platform. Uh, and they were uh, extremely lucky to get away with that designation. But they have 
until now gotten away with that designation. But in banning someone like Donald Trump, they are acting as a publisher. They are acting as a regulator. And who are they? Who gave Zuckerberg or Sir Nick Clegg the right to ban thee or me from social media? Nathaniel, thank you very much for the call. Now, the poll is almost closed, I think. 1,861 votes. 14% of you are glad that Sir Nick prevailed and Trump was banned at least for another two years. 74%, nearly uh, three quarters of you, think uh, that it was wrong. Uh, but 12% of you think he should have been banned forever. The Telegram poll is almost exactly the same. Hey, you. Do you want to know more of what's happening in the world right now? Of course you do. But getting to the heart of the story, well, that's going to take some hard work. That's why here at the Mother of All Talk Shows, we've created that program just for you. Hosted by one of the world's most sagacious minds. Get a perspective, an education on stories from all around the world, dissected and discussed with you. Join our debate, vote in our polls on Twitter, tweet a question to George or call in now to give us your perspective on the stories the rest of the world simply isn't talking about. Join the College of Knowledge where there are no tuition fees. Hosted by one of the world's greatest orators, the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. Let's make sense of the world together. Now my good wife has joined me. How lucky am I? In fact, she came in to scold me uh, for slouching, so I'm trying to sit ramrod straight. Uh, but she is going to tell us some of the things that are on social media. But just before you do, uh, the mother of all tweets has to be Bill Karmetsky. Galloway hates his own kind, his ancestry, his culture, to suck up to Bolshevik power and money. I wish there was Bolshevik power and money to suck up to. <laughs> Tell me, uh, Gayatri, what's rattling? Right, so uh, the poll is doing very well. It uh, brings up a, a lot of um, commentary. Uh, Huge number, and almost 2,000 people did, yeah. voted on it. Odell Sheeran says, I don't care for Trump's politics, but censorship of a former president in the land of the free. Doesn't sound very uh, free indeed. And uh, Alan Healy says, I say Ben, uh, Ben Nicklack, not just from Twitter. <laughs> and uh, Paul Murphy says, by banning Trump, they're actually showing how relevant he is and that they're scared shirtless. And Michael Albanese says, Donald Trump incited insurrection against the government of the US. He not only should be banned from social media, he should be imprisoned for life. Or better yet, executed as per the Trump administration's resurrection of the execution of federal prisoners. No, we, we disapprove of that. We and do. also shirtlessness. <laughs> uh, now, the, the, uh, the, the buzz around the left at the time in America and in Britain was that uh, he had it coming. And we had, had it from a caller earlier mm -hmm. that he had it uh, coming. Uh, but more sensible people surely worked out that if Nick Clegg can bomb, uh, can bomb, can ban uh, Trump, he can ban anybody. And he might, he might ban you next or someone that you like, yes, someone yeah. that you support. And then they become a non-person. 
and I haven't heard from Donald Trump for months. I'd like to know what he's saying. I know. It's my right in a, in a free society, isn't it? It is your right. Uh, however, Marek makes the point. I don't agree with Sir Nick Clegg, but hey, never mind. At least we can read and hear what the not cognitively impaired at all sippy cup Joe Biden has to say anytime he wants. Yeah, but nobody <laughs> wants to see a tweet by Joe Biden. I mean, let's face it. Mm -hmm. I mean, he doesn't say or do anything interesting. It's outrageous, isn't it? It's outrageous. Uh, speaking as a non-Trump um, fan, we want to have him... Uh, actually, he was very interesting. Well, he's <laughs> certainly entertaining. Co uh, do you want to hear about COVID? Yeah. Because people were very happy to see uh, Dr. Ranjit Rar back. Very good. I was very happy about uh, it myself. They, some of them, like James, because they were a bit worried that uh, he wouldn't be back after giving an objective view on the vaccine side effect. Oh, no, 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 no. He's no. still the, he's the most medic forever. Yes, but... They've got him on a long-term contract. Echoes Bunny Woman says, is Galloway still pushing the COVID scamdemic narrative? Yawn. <laughs> Anyway, the digital ID role is rolling out fast and the globalists are panicking and she says, therefore, the COVID is falling apart. Someone has looked up at the NHS app, though, Lord Charfield, and it categorically says the patient data cannot be used for insurance and marketing purposes. Well, everyone should opt out and then it definitely cannot. I don't think Dr. Ranjit was making it up. Um, I haven't heard you make a comment about uh, Lilibet yet. Who's that? Lilibet, the new royal baby. Whose baby? The Duchess of Sussex. Meghan? Meghan and Harry. Oh, my sincere apologies. I didn't even know the about it. The baby was born today. Lilibet. Yeah. Uh, Lilibet. Lilibet Diana. That's a, a, a kind of, um, what would you call it? Um, an abbreviation, uh, but a, a sweetheart one of Elizabeth, yeah? Yes, yes. But uh, Deidre uh, says... Lilibet Diana. Diana. Yes. Well, very nice. Well, congratulations. Harry and Meghan, and to uh, all their family. I'm sure there's much rejoicing in the royal palaces of Britain today over this wonderful news. Deidre says, however, such hypocrisy to name your daughter after your grandmother after publicly throwing the royal family under the bus with Oprah, whilst her husband, Philip, was ill and then hospitalised and then died. They, they're kind of acting as if that had never happened, I think, hoping to move on. Not sure the others in the royal family will let them, but... There you go. Finally, I don't know why this came up, or I think I'd know uh, because of today's game about I'm Romania. Again. <laughs> about Romania, uh, reckless abandon says Ceausescu and his wife were not unpopular. They were assassinated by British agents in the military. Uh, Is this on the back of well, the game with England? Uh, actually, I know that not to be true uh, because I wrote a book on it. It's called Downfall: The Ceausescu's and the Romanian Revolution. I'm not sure how available it still is. It was 30 years ago, uh, but uh, you'll get the truth in there. Thank you. That's it. Yes. Mrs. Uh, very nice to see you back on the Moats screen. And I promise uh, to sit up straight uh, for the rest of the show. Now, I didn't give you the answer. James Earl Ray was arrested for the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King in London. Interesting that. What was he doing in London? Was he making a run uh, for it? Anyway, let's go to the phone lines. It's Wayne in Cheshire. Wayne, welcome to the show. Always a pleasure. Um, just some information um, about the 100,000 um, signatures for the debate. Yes. Uh, a couple of months, when they brought it in, they said 
they had to have um, debates for more than 100,000 signatures. A couple of months afterwards, they changed the rules because they didn't like what the debates were going to be. So now they are willing to look at having a debate. Ah, so it's no longer mandatory? No. I told you I was rusty on the rules on that, uh, but I hope to uh, um, oil that rust uh, quite soon. Uh, so, but it is going ahead. It is on the uh, 14th. Uh, it is a week tomorrow, isn't it? Uh, I couldn't tell you because I've run up for I, something I, else. I, I, I'm, 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 pretty, I'm pretty sure. But go ahead anyway, Wayne. Well, if I was um, giving advice to Keir Starmer and the Labour Party, and this is quite sincerely, I would tell him to grow his hair, unwash, dress scruffy as possible, openly be seen drunk and smoking cannabis in the street, have many adulterous affairs, fully privatise the NHS he wants to do, tax oxygen in the air and immerse himself in corruption, and then he might get some votes. Well, he uh, did, of course, uh, regularly try LSD uh, when at Leeds University, which I found quite uh, extraordinary that a Queen's Council, former DPP, now leader of Her Majesty's opposition, didn't just inhale, uh, but actually was uh, an LSD fiend. So it does have a, a history, Wayne. I didn't actually know that. Um, n now, I've come to the 100% conclusion that either the British public are completely insane and uneducated and stupid, mm or the whole thing is fixed, or they just, love, they just love the insanity, the craziness of Boris Johnson. Well, and I think that up. makes you quite a typical leftist uh, who wants to abolish the people and appoint a new one. Uh, I, don't, I don't understand what you're trying to say. Well, what I'm trying to say is uh, the uh, British people uh, have a view on Keir Starmer versus Boris Johnson. It's quite a settled view now, 91 polls in a row, and they prefer Boris Johnson. So your answer to that is that they are insane. Well, no, maybe, no, no, maybe no, it's your no. side of politics that isn't relating to the British people. After all, no, no. twice as many working class people prefer Boris Johnson to Keir Starmer. But you're not understanding. What I'm trying to say is, let, let's just go for the NHS. Why would anyone with any intelligence want to vote for something like the NHS? Because they don't know. As good as it could possibly be? Because they don't know, and that's because the Labour Party, which is supposed to be the opposition, gets millions of pounds to be the opposition from the state isn't an opposition at all. You heard Dr. Ranji earlier. The Labour Party hasn't even opposed the mass transfer of our medical records to private business. I know. Can you, could you honestly, I know you can only say much on the television, why are they doing this, Labour? I think Labour hates uh, the British people and cannot uh, hide it. And I think the British people hate the Labour Party back. It's not just Brexit, though Brexit was a big turning point. I think there will be no turning back from it. But it's been going on for decades. The Labour Party's infatuation 
with woke identity politics, endlessly dividing people with talk of sex and gender and race and sexual orientation and pronouns and, and politically correct speech, convinced the British people that Labour hated them, and I think they are now hated back. I know it sounds stupid, but what does this woke mean? It means all the things I've just described. Thanks very <laughs> much, Wayne. Uh, a new caller is Ordell in Manchester. Go ahead, Ordell. Hi, George. Nice to speak to you again. And um, you? I'm just, I just want to talk about Palestine, really. Um, sadly, I was protesting back in 2014 in Manchester after the um, genocide that Israel was committing against the people in Palestine. And sadly, seven years later, we're still doing the same thing. Um, I was at Oldham yesterday demanding that the Elbit factory in Oldham be shut down. There have um, been some heroic uh, protesters there on the roof and so on. This is a factory yeah. that produces drones uh, for the Israeli military uh, yeah, that's right. in the northwest of England. Who would have thunk it? Go ahead. Yeah, it's the only factory apparently in the north of England that um, is producing these drones, so we would want to get it shut, shut down. Um, 240 civilians killed in Gaza, and it's done on my doorstep. Um, what I wanted to make the point is something you touched on earlier. Um, we've been protesting for years, and you know, people are with us at the moment. Court of public opinion is with us, um, but sadly, the people in power are not. My local MP in Hyde and Staley Bridge um, is a part of Labour LFI, Labour Friends of Israel, and he's the vice chair there. Uh, and we have a we have a big Asian community in Hyde and Staley Bridge, and he's and he's. Majority is diminishing all the time. And I want to make the point that these Labour safe seats now, with the support of Israel, we need to kind of lobby against them um, and pressure them to get, get them out of power, um, like we do with BDS. Well, with uh, uh, it's a terrific uh, call, Ordell, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. Uh, half of all Labour MPs, half of all Labour MPs are members of the Labour Friends of Israel. And it's the most powerful half of the parliamentary Labour Party uh, that get most of the jobs, including every single, every single shadow minister at the Foreign Office with responsibility for the Middle East has been a member of the Labour Friends of Israel. But 75% of all Conservative MPs are members of the Conservative Friends of Israel. What is it, Ordell, about Israel that attracts all these friends? They lobby, I suppose they lobby a lot harder than us and a lot smarter than us. We need to protest in a smarter way. Um, a very, very good answer, young man. Thank you very Thank you. much for giving it. Elliot is in Florida on the Trump ban. Go ahead, Elliot. Oh, George. Thank you. Nice to talk to you again. Uh, you know, we had this out before, and um, uh, I, I support uh, banning Trump for uh, for reasons that um, I, I'm sure you, you don't appreciate. But I wanted to address your narrative of the whole thing, which is, it seems a bit specious. The the fact that uh, in Europe there there are laws against uh, hate speech, and there are none here. But uh, aside from that, it seems like the narrative that uh, if we allow uh, them, the powerful media, to do this to Trump, then we're next. No, we're not next. We were first. 
<laughs> we are first, and we will be next uh, and last, and, and it will continue. So you're content for these people to have the power to ban You're content for these people to have the power to ban you. I have no... It's not mine to say I have no power one way or the other. They are the billionaires. They are the media. Okay. They have and you're the content. power to do you're content. You're content with that. I'm not content. No, I'm content. With so you their, don't want them banning. to ban you or me, but I you want, want them, them to ban to Trump. Ban the people, I don't want them to ban the, the, the progressives, the people that uh, are, are uh, pro-Palestinian. But they are doing that. Yeah, they and you denounce that. it. Yeah. You of don't course, think, I, you that, don't think, not, you don't, don't hold on, hold on, Elliot. You don't think they should have the power to ban thee and me, what you call the progressives. But you're absolutely content for them to ban others. How do you think that is going to hold as an intellectual position? That's a specious argument. It's not... One again, black and white, or it's not a uh, you know, uh, it, it's not equal. Well, the band, one you, is the band us, one, on one hand, the band us, despite your opposition, speech. please, they banned us despite your opposition. Now they've banned him, so you're content that they should have the power to despite decide who can speak and where. No, there, there's one on one hand, it's a political speech in the case of banning. Uh, pro-Palestinian or well, and Israeli or would say, that they don't and like. Israeli but, calls it but, hate um, speech. In the case of Trump, let me finish. Let me t finish this. In the case of Trump, they banned him because he was inciting insurrection and was threatening to continue to incite insurrection again. That's but, the point. All right, I'll let you finish. But that's exactly what Netanyahu would say about my speech this evening. I'm inciting insurrection. He would call it hate speech. In fact, he's, he's probably already done so to my boss in oh, Moscow. You see, you see, your, your argument is disappearing up its own fundament. No, one man's, one man's, one man's hate speech is another man's free <laughs> speech. Oh, my gosh. Elliot, Elliot, they told me you wanted a. They told me you wanted a fight. I thought you'd be a bit more <laughs> effective in the uh, ring. I must say. Now, one man who would very much likely to have had her picture up on his bedroom wall because he's that kind of a guy was the irrepressible broadcaster and journalist, political commentator, one of my very favourite ones too, Patrick Christie's. Patrick, welcome back on board. Thank you very much. How did, how, how did you know about my Margaret Thatcher picture, George? Well, I knew someone that had been in your bedroom, but that is <laughs> another story. Um, Patrick, yes. first of all, are the champagne corks popping all over the royal estate at the new royal baby, or are they going to find out first what colour it is? Yes, it's an interesting one, isn't it, really? This Now, obviously, this is the news, of course, that uh, Lilibet Diana, Mountbatten-Windsor, has joined us. She joined the world on Friday. Uh, Meghan and Harry's uh, choice of name has raised eyebrows. What they're saying is that potentially it's an opportunity to build bridges, a, a desire to build bridges with the royal family. Uh, clearly, it's come after, well, a series of very explosive 
uh, interviews, most of them involving Oprah, uh, and, uh, and clearly there's been a lot of issues there with, with regards to the royal family. You're right to point out the issue of colour, and that was one that was pointed out by Meghan Markle, where it was said that the royal family was a, an unnamed member of the royal family, which of course then kind of tarnished the whole royal family, really, um, uh, did say apparently that uh, there were questions raised about what colour Archie uh, would be. Um, now, this was actually compounded this week, earlier this week, by real kind of genuine proof of racism in the, in the royal family, actually, that has emerged in the 1960s, where actually it was the royal family exempted themselves from equality law, and it meant that anyone who was in any way of colour, or as they called it, for foreign immigrants uh, into this country, uh, was only able, and amongst the royal staff, to be a servant and could not rise any higher, and that was as recently as the 1960s. So, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, it is quite embarrassing. They actually secured an exemption from the Race Relations Act, yeah. which is definitely not a good look. Although, I've no. got to say, uh, my own family and Gayatri's family undoubtedly ruminated before our first was born on what it would look like, uh, what its eyes would be like, yeah. what colour it would be. There's yeah. nothing actually essentially abnormal in wondering what the uh, fruit of a mixed marriage uh, will be. But that uh, being as it uh, may, uh, Boris Johnson, now a happily married man, well, at least I hope so, uh, they do say, Sir James Goldsmith famously said, uh, when a man marries his mistress, he automatically creates a vacancy. Will <laughs> Boris Johnson now keep it in his trousers? Oh, well, well, I mean, what well, you have to say that at no point during his life has he ever done that. So why would he, why would he start now, I suppose? But um, look, I suppose maybe it's a bit different now. He would not want to demean the office, the esteemed high office of British Prime Minister by uh, having kind of casual affairs. I mean, look, any way that you look at it now, uh, carriers clearly, uh, there must have been some conversations behind the scenes along the lines of, you know, obviously when he was elected, he went off to Mustique, which in itself has caused lots of issues about who paid for that holiday. Um, and, and he proposed to carry uh, over there. And then now they've had that. They've had their wedding. It's interesting, actually. There's been a series of Boris Johnson's former flings and, I believe, one former wife and one former fiancé, which is uh, says something about the, the fruity nature of his personal life, all kind of tripping over themselves now to basically say, good luck, Carrie. He's an absolute nightmare. So, um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see how, how this one pans out, George. <laughs> now, you, you say the esteemed office and all that. I don't know if you saw the Sunday Times story today. You must have seen the story about me, but I don't know if you read the story uh, about Sir Brendan Bracken. Uh, now, uh, for uh, the younger viewers, uh, Brendan Bracken was Churchill's right-hand man, a very loyal supporter of Winston Churchill in the wilderness years uh, when uh, Churchill was agitating for Britain to stand up to Hitler as he grew more and more powerful and so on. In other words, one of the good eggs in the Conservative Party was against appeasement uh, and who founded the Financial Times, no less, which headquarters is called Bracken House. Now, Bracken, it turns out, according to a powerful piece in the Sunday Times today, had a fetish for being caned so powerful that he hired great country houses and turned them into temporary summer schools and got strapping six formers from 
uh, the great public schools of the land and paid them to thrash him all day long. So there's dignity and there's dignity in, uh, in high politics, isn't there? Yeah, there very much is. Uh, absolutely. It was, uh, it was a shocking story. Well, the thing is, actually, I suppose it's a depressing fact that it is a shocking story just by its nature, right? The whole, the whole element of this is, is quite a shocking thing. However, it's not, unfortunately, that necessarily that shocking that uh, some conservative politicians in the past were into this kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, this is, uh, this is, yeah, the story, as you rightly said there, that you uh, pretended to be a 16-year-old with a premature aging condition as well. So this guy's gone to extreme lengths to indulge a particular fantasy here. But um, it's a shame, really, isn't it, that on this day, because he was obviously Churchill's wartime uh, Minister of Information, it's a shame, really, that on this day, the, the commemoration of, of D-Day, the 77-year anniversary of, of the D-Day landings, the landings in Normandy, that, you know, actually there's, there's some kind of the focus on Brendan Bracken's uh, sexual fetishes. You know, it's a, it's a bit of a shame, really. That I think those two things are cross paths at the same time. It's a brilliant segue, and I was uh, wondering how I could segue from what I've just said to what I wanted to ask you. It strikes me that given there can be hardly any uh, survivors left uh, from the D-Day landing, that the greatness of what happened on this day in 1944 has somewhat slipped down the batting order in uh, in the media. Hmm. Yeah, it, it has, actually. And I think it's a real shame on numerous counts, of course, because if you forget the true horrors of what happened that day in the wider context of the just horrific nature of World War II uh, in general, then actually I think there's some risk or potential risk of things like that maybe happening again. Uh, and I think there's, a, there's an accumulated wisdom that comes with people of a certain age and who have been through some lived experiences, such as the horrific D-Day landings. And if we ignore that, or if we push it down the pecking order when it comes to uh, the, the, the news agenda, then I think we lose sight of it. And it's a shame, isn't it? Because there's an irony here. There wouldn't be a news agenda in the way that we know it if it wasn't for the people who landed and fought and in some cases suddenly died on the beaches uh, in Normandy. Many of and, them and I, teenagers, Patrick. Yeah, many of them teenagers, exactly, of course, of course. And I think as well it's fascinating for me that we're seeing now more and more things in this country like school children wanting to tear down the Union Jack outside their schools and teachers indulging that. And I think, you know, on the 77th anniversary of, of one of Britain's greatest military operations, um, I think, you know, it's, it's poignant to remember that we wouldn't have the opportunity to shout at our own flag now if it wasn't for some of those people who made the ultimate sacrifice. A point very well made. Uh, uh, here's a couple of calls for you and indeed for both of us. Graham is in Ayrshire. Uh, he's up first. Uh, Graham, go ahead. Good evening, George. Good evening to you as well, Patrick. Um, I joined in just when Ranjit was talking, and he was talking about how he would probably support the, the easing of restrictions at the moment. I mm -hmm. wanted to take a, a different tone on that, if that's all right. Sure, go ahead. Uh, that heavy as I build my case. Um, but Ranjit's uh, rationale was that the link between cases and deaths of COVID-19 has been broken, and that's obviously because older adults, which is the group that's most at risk, are fully or mostly vaccinated now. Now, I don't know that that's conclusive, but I'm willing to, to go along with that for the moment. But what I did want to raise is, why is no one talking about long covid it seems like death is the only metric that anyone's using, and I noticed that's what Ranjit was referring to as well. But long COVID, and by that I'm talking about a cluster of symptoms that people get post-infection. Uh, that can include cognitive impairment, including your memory, shortness of breath, chronic pain, gastrointestinal, wide range of symptoms. And there was some research that came out in the past week or so that uh, 
told us that a million people in Britain have experienced symptoms of long COVID. And of those, 365,000 have reported symptoms after 12 months. So those people might never get better. And well, look, I, I, that, I, I, I need to cut that short, but it's a fascinating call, Graham. Uh, but because of the hour and the sheer number of people uh, trying to get through, I don't uh, have the expertise to answer that. I don't expect, though I could be wrong, uh, that Patrick does either. But the long COVID issue, just like ME, Patrick, perhaps a little before your time, might very well become a, a, a long-running neuralgic uh, point uh, in uh, British uh, uh, discourse. Absolutely, 100%. There's so much about this virus that we don't know yet, and it's just simply by the nature of how long it's been around and how long we've been uh, doing tests on it. And it's a similar thing as well when it comes to the vaccinations now. You know, we are hearing here now about 75% of adults being jabbed, 50% of uh, people being double jabbed, and it's seeming to be uh, perfectly effective against all the known variants so far. In fact, this week we were apparently terrified of the Nepalese variant. The World Health Organization came out and said they don't even think that one exists. Although, to be fair, in January they also said last time, the January before last, they also said that uh, they didn't think there was any human-to-human -human transmission of the coronavirus. So they're not always right. Um, but um, the, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a there's a lot that we don't know, and there's a lot of uh, of information that we need to get over the course of uh, you know the coming months uh, and indeed possibly years as well and a lot of that does centre around the vaccine as well as it now is getting to the point where we're looking to start vaccinating essentially children the Pfizer vaccine this week was uh, passed for use amongst uh, 12 to 15 year olds this is one of the big questions now isn't it which is yes it all seems certainly safe so far and pretty much anyway and that's great but we don't have a lot of the long-term data yet both on this virus and on the vaccine and so it can be a bit tricky as to whether or not we now start putting it in kids arms really just before I go to Sean in Stevenage, Patrick, you must have been delighted to see the sepulchral figure of Tony Blair back on our screens. He seems to be calling the shots in the Labour Party, but perhaps in the Conservative Party too. Mm. It's a damning indictment of where the Labour Party is at the moment that Tony Blair is still seen as a credible potential uh, leading force in there. I think it's absolutely astonishing that both him and Alistair Campbell actually have any kind of say whatsoever on British politics and why there's not repeated and uh, frankly relentless questions based around their moral compass and what went on uh, in the Middle East. The only way, I've said it before, so again, the only way I would like to see Tony Blair back in frontline politics is if we could then drag him back uh, and make him account for uh, some of the horrors, frankly, of, uh, of the things that he's been responsible for. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it is the fact that Tony Blair now is he's relentlessly sticking his oar in. I think the fact is that he's the, well, really probably the most successful leader of the Labour Party, certainly in recent times anyway. And he is potentially at a time when the Labour Party actually just does not seem to be producing anyone who seems like they could win a general election. Tony Blair's won three of them. I can understand now why people are getting more uh, uh, attuned to the idea of a Blair return. It's that trade-off. Are you willing to accept Blair just in order for the Labour Party to potentially win a general election again? And, and I suppose only Labour Party members will know the answer to that. Well, uh, speaking as the leader of a rival party, I'd be delighted if Mr Blair did come back as the leader of the Labour Party. Although, as I said earlier, there seems little reason for him to do so because he controls what happens in the Labour Party without having to register his interests in the House of Commons. Let's hear from Sean in Stevenage. Go ahead, Sean. Hey, up, George. How are you doing? By the grace of God, I'm great. Fighting fit. Thank you. <laughs> good, good, good. Um, 
very interesting to see Dr. Bra back on. I was surprised and pleased, and uh, it's good to see him. I like his comments. Yeah. Um, I've I got a couple of quick observations here, and it's interesting what Patrick was just saying about mm, the data and extending out the vaccine to younger age groups. Um, we, we all know and we've discussed the levels of corruption this government has been up to um, during this COVID crisis, where they've had their hands in the till and they've been taking advantage. By the, um, uh, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'll let you go on, Sean, but yeah. uh, the SNP government are revealed in Scotland in today's newspapers to have been doing exactly the same thing giving out hundreds of millions of pounds worth of contracts to businesses sympathetic to the SNP uh, without any uh, due process. Uh, go ahead, Sean. Is there nobody honest anymore? Yeah, me and, Patrick, uh, me and Patrick could form a coalition okay. of all the talents. Sean, thanks for calling. Patrick, uh, yeah. there will be a reckoning, uh, of course, on the as uh, Dominic Cummings made the point, there seems no reason why the public inquiry into what happened in total uh, in the pandemic should not begin immediately. It's been kicked down the road to next year, but next year will soon be here. And uh, uh, there's going to be perhaps unforeseen circumstances uh, or, or consequences rather uh, to how it's all been handled, including the point that was just made there about how the money was handed over. Absolutely, yeah. And that, the, the, the kind of jobs for the boys nature of the Conservative Party's approach to uh, dishing out contracts uh, at the start of this pandemic and indeed throughout, including someone who used to live, live next door to Matt Hancock and owned his favourite pub, and that's one of many, frankly, um, is, is, is deeply questionable. There are also, of course, massive issues in relation to the care home scandal that happened there, and that is a proper out-and-out -out scandal that undoubtedly and unequivocally cost potentially thousands of lives where we're sending people back into care homes knowingly with coronavirus and let it just rip through that particular part of our society. So, I mean, at the minimum that has to happen there eventually is that Matt Hancock will go at some point because of that, I would imagine. Um, the question is, I think it's going to be a really interesting one, this, for a study in the British political psyche, really, about... Let's just say our vaccine rollout continues and, and continues to be magnificent and there's no reason to believe that it won't. And let's just say then that we get out of the big coffee sneezy woods of coronavirus pretty soon. Once all that's done, is the public appetite for this now going to be, let's just never talk about this again, I'm sick and tired of it, or are they going to be demanding for Boris Johnson's head? And I suspect that it might be the former one and that Boris Johnson might actually not, not come out of it too, too badly. Also, you do have to look at it and go... Well, that's what happened with Blair and Chilcot. Yeah. If you think about it, Chilcot, we, we waited years for Chilcot, and it was no sooner launched than it was forgotten. Yeah, exactly that, you know, and, and I, think, I think people will want to just move on. There are question marks, serious question marks, though, anyway, about how long Boris Johnson wants to continue to be Prime Minister, and so whether or not that, that is something, you know, let's just fast forward and say, say we start this report in a year and it takes about a year, well, that's quite a long way in political terms down the line. Does Boris Johnson decide that he particularly wants to carry on after that anyway, you know? Certainly if his own personal finances are, are anything to go by, then potentially not. I mean, Carrie, bless her, had to rent her wedding dress, didn't she? So potentially he could go back to writing a uh, writing uh, articles that Telegraph for a quarter of a million quid, you know, maybe that starts a little more I'm, I'm drying my eyes here, uh, Patrick, <laughs> uh, at, the, uh, at the poverty uh, you describe. Thank you very much indeed. It's been an absolute pleasure. It always is. Patrick Christie, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows.
but I have to tell you one or two things just before I close. Today, as I said, is a very special day for my YouTube channel. We hit 100,000 subscribers, and I want to thank everyone who has subscribed to my channel, uh, not just now, uh, but for many, many years past. So uh, the longer you've been a subscriber, the more heartily I'm thanking you this evening. It's a major milestone to get to 100,000. I need to tell you also that you can listen to a podcast version of the show. It's brand new and available wherever you get your podcasts. Just search The Mother of All Talk Shows. It's on Spotify, Deezer, Google, Apple Podcasts, and many others. Listen to in over 22 countries so far. If you're like me and you don't know what a podcast is, it's basically a compressed version of this show, half the length, all the ads and breaks and hiccups taken out. So it's the quintessential uh, version of the mother of all talk shows. Uh, so I uh, commend it to the house, as they say. I've got time just for one more. Jared in Pennsylvania on COVID-19. Be quick, Jared. Hello, uh, George. Um, let's talk to you again. Um, yeah, uh, COVID-19. Um, I think um, we're finally moving out of the worst of the pandemic. Um, but the real question is, have we learned anything from that? Mm. And it doesn't seem that America or Great Britain all have. I mean, you look at places like China... Vietnam, they're just rolling on ahead as like basically the West has just um, really adopted a lot of this, you know, libertarian free market. Like we got to open up, everything is all good and like that. But um, I don't really see any push for like win-win cooperation or any kind of universal worldwide healthcare system. No, absolutely. Uh, no uh, lessons are likely to be learned, although everyone will say lessons have to be learned. Uh, the reality is when these things happen, uh, lessons are not learned because lessons learned are expensive. You have to take action uh, on the lessons that you learned. You'd have to, for example, make sure that you had a health service uh, that was capable of standing up to a pandemic. And we don't, and you certainly don't. You'd have to uh, work out how the virus has so disastrously affected uh, the people in the poorest communities, uh, the people that were living in the most overcrowded conditions the people that had no garden to sit out in, the people that were cooped up in small apartments with big families, you'd have to draw a lot of expensive conclusions if you did. China has not just bounced back. China is powering forward, growing at a faster rate than any other country in the world. Having been the place where the virus seems to have originated and yet they dealt with it. 
better than anyone else in the world. And you might think that that is a lesson that all of us might draw upon. I certainly reflect upon it. I don't want to be Chinese or to be in China, but I wouldn't mind a government that could deal with a pandemic as powerfully quickly as they did. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 